Well, few things do more damage to the cause of Christ than when those who claim to follow Christ show themselves to be hypocritical. When those who take up the name of Jesus then then deny him by their works and live lives that, that bring reproach to the name of Christ. On the other hand, um, few things will make people in this world want to stop and, and listen to what we have to say more than lives that, that are zealous for what is good, lives full of divine love and mercy, self-control, diligence, courage, and especially when the people of God live their lives together in such a way that makes people say, these people must be the followers of Christ. Even as Jesus himself said, how will all people know you're my disciples? By your love for one another. So, yes, we proclaim a gospel message with words that people, a message that people need to understand in order to, and to believe in order to have eternal life. But oftentimes, and I've seen this far too often, people don't care what we have to say because they think Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, how can we as a church, how can we as a church be strong for years to come? How can we be a light in the world as Jesus taught us to be, such that when people see our good works, they glorify our Father which is in heaven? That doesn't just happen. God actually means for us to to work out this this kind of life together to train ourselves and to train one another for holy lives that bring honor to God. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we return to the book of Titus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Titus chapter 2. You can find this on page 938 in the Pew Bible. Titus. We're actually going to be starting uh, towards the end of chapter one, but we're going to be focusing on the last part of chapter one and also on the first part of chapter two of Titus. Just a heads up, you know, if you're reading the Bible, um, oftentimes, you know, these, these chapter and verse numbers are not inspired. Um, they were put there much later after the Bible was originally written. And, and sometimes we have to be careful that they don't interrupt the flow of thought. We can come to the end of a chapter and think, all right, well, close my Bible. You know, I've reached a stopping point. But more often than not, uh, what we find is that um, if you do that, you'll, you'll often stop right in the middle of the author's train of thought. You'll only get half of what he's meaning to communicate. And, and so what, that's what we're going to be doing here is we're going to be in chapter one and chapter two a little bit this morning. Well, last week we thought about Satan's strategy to weaken the Christian community from within. You know, he wants to fill our ranks with chaos and confusion so that we'll misunderstand what our Lord would have us to do, what he wants us to be about in this world, so that, so that he can sap our energy, so that he can 
can help to mar our corporate reputation in this world so that no one wants anything to do with our gospel and our Savior. And Satan does this mainly through deception. He brings in false ideas and false teachings into the church through his agents, these these false teachers. And and these were what, what was threatening the infant churches on the island of Crete. These churches, these young churches, were being infected with the disease of error. And they needed to be restored to health and strengthened for the work ahead of them that God would have them to do. And last week, we saw that phase one of strengthening and establishing these Christian communities for lives together that honored God and and that got rid of this disease of error. Phase one was appointing good leaders, biblically qualified pastors to oversee God's work. But now we come to to phase two of the game plan. And this this more addresses all of us as, as the church members together. Yes, it speaks to pastors, but it speaks to all of us. And what we're going to be thinking about today is how we are called as church members to train one another, to train one another in the lives that honor God. So start with me, if you've turned there in your Bibles, in Titus 1, we're going to start in verse 10 of Titus chapter 1. And please stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's word. Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, 
but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. We'll stop there. You may be seated. Well, here's the main idea of this passage this morning. Here's the main lesson. It's this, that a healthy church is one where the members train one another in the life that honors God through corrective and formative discipline. A healthy church is one where the members train one another in the life that honors God by corrective and formative discipline. And we'll break this down into three main points this morning. First of all, training through corrective discipline. Secondly, training through formative discipline. And third, the results of such training. So first of all, point number one, if you're taking notes, training through corrective discipline. Training through corrective discipline. Notice that Christians are not meant to live their lives on an island, in a, on top of a mountain somewhere by themselves. Christians are meant to do life together. And they're meant to live life in community where they encourage one another in their faith, hold one another accountable, help one another follow Christ. We see this even in the, in the Great Commission where Christ told us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. We, we do that as we live life together, imparting information, mentoring, and, and helping them, modeling, leading by example. Here in Titus 2, we see that, for example, in uh, you know, the, the older women are to train the, the younger women. We see that in verse three, right there at the end of the verse, in, in verse four. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women. Uh, in, in the book of Colossians, uh, the Christians in the local church, they're to be teaching and admonishing one another in, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One of the reasons why we try to sing together here at Emmanuel is because what that time is meant to do is we're, we're to sing to one another in, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we're, as we hear each other's voices proclaiming God's truth in song, that's meant to encourage our souls. But even, so even if you're not a pastor, you as a Christian, you as a church member, are called to have a, have a role to play in the lives of other Christians. They need you, and you need them. This is the way God designed it. We're to train one another. And, and the, again, one way we do this is through corrective discipline. That's what we see here at the end of chapter 1. Notice there's this, there's this word rebuke. There's this instruction given to Titus in verse 13. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Those, those false teachers that we thought a little bit about last week, they were coming into the church 
And what they were teaching people was not really from the word of God. It was not the, the, the true teaching of scripture rightly explained and applied. Instead, it was commands of men, commands of people, verse 14. Instead, it was, it was Jewish myths. It seems like a lot of these false teachers were, uh, had some kind of Jewish background and probably they were reading obscure things out of the ancient Jewish scriptures and, and making up uh, you know, distracting myths that would have distracted people from what was really important. And maybe focusing on, on numbers and symbolism and things like that, um, but, but ignoring more of the, the clear and straightforward commands of Scripture. And, and even replacing those with their own human traditions, their own legalism, their own man-made rituals that you couldn't really find in the Bible, rightly interpreted, but that was just the way that you were supposed to do things if you wanted to really be a holy person. If you really wanted to be close to God, you needed to follow these certain rules. You know, Timothy was probably facing some of the same type of false teaching in Ephesus. Uh, we can see in, in the books of First and Second Timothy some of the false teaching he was up against. There were people that were uh, commanding others to abstain from certain meats. And, and, and saying that marriage was, was something you should really avoid. You know, it's, it's better to be single. You know, preaching celibacy as a way to be close to God and, and to live a pure life, a holy life that would please God. And, and you see how Paul would come against these things. Like, this is, this is human tradition. These are commands of people. They're utterly worthless in helping you get closer to God. Instead of helping people walk in the truth, such teachings are turning people away from the truth. You see that in verse 14. This is why the, the people of Crete, Titus was to rebuke them sharply because they were walking down a deadly path, a spiritually deadly path that was going to injure them spiritually and hinder the work of God and even bring dishonor upon the name of God and cause the non-believing world to say, if that's what a Christian is, I want nothing to do with it. And so the situation was urgent. It demanded a sharp rebuke. Kind of like if, you know, if Brother Jim Rose was walking along and there's a rattlesnake right in front of him. I said, I wouldn't say, hey, Brother Jim, maybe you should slow down a little bit. I'd say, Stop. You know, I'd, I'd kind of yell a little bit, raise my voice. As the situation demands, sometimes a sharp rebuke is needed. In other places in Scripture, we're called to correct our opponents with gentleness. And the way I, I reconcile those two things, you know, a sharp rebuke, gentleness, is thinking about gentleness, you're not wanting to do any more harm than is absolutely necessary for the good of the other person. You're, you're not just giving vent to your anger. You're thinking, what is needed for this other person to help them? And I'm not going to raise my voice or, or speak sternly any more than is needed to help them. We see that the good of the other person is in mind with this corrective discipline. It's so that they may be sound in the faith, as verse 13 says. 
rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound. That word could be translated healthy. It could be translated healthy. It's more of a, it's almost a medical term. Like somebody is sound and whole, healthy, that they may be healthy in their faith. As a church, we have to love one another. We must love one another by sometimes exercising corrective discipline. So whenever, whenever somebody joins this church, whenever you go through the membership interview, uh, I, I let you know on the front end, prepare, if you start walking in error or in sin, prepare to be corrected. That's only fair to those joining in membership here. Because in a lot of churches, that's, that doesn't happen. You know, it, it would be like, wait a second, I didn't sign up for this. And so we let you know on the front end, you're, you're joining in a, a community of Christians and you're signing up to be held accountable. And you also have a responsibility to the other members of this church to hold them accountable. And if needed, to correct them in a spirit of love. Because yes, there are dangerous ideas that we can sometimes get into our minds, even as Christians. I mean, Peter, look at the apostle Peter. If anybody you'd think, you know, is close to God and, you know, in step with the spirit, it would wouldn't it be him? But even Peter, and you can go to the first part of the book of Galatians, even Peter had to be confronted. Even Peter was, he, he was walking hypocritically at one point. You know, he was showing, uh, he was fearing man and showing uh, partiality, and he had to be corrected by Paul. And so if, if even Peter would sometimes need to be corrected, certainly each of us, we sometimes have blind spots and we sometimes walk in, in sin and we're not even realizing it. And that's where the other members of your church family can come alongside of you and, and help you point that out, hopefully in a spirit of love and humility and with much prayer. Another place you can think about this idea of corrective discipline is Matthew 18. You know, we, we, sometimes we take Matthew 18 and, you know, you go to your brother if he's offended you. We kind of put that in a, in a family context. Like this is what families do at home. But actually what's in the forefront of Jesus's mind is the local church uh, and, and your brothers in Christ. And we see that the last step is to, if the person doesn't listen, you take it to the church. So we Christians are to train one another. Healthy churches exercise corrective discipline. But point number two, secondly, not just corrective discipline, but training through formative discipline. Formative discipline. You know, if corrective discipline is like surgery, like removing a cancerous tumor from the body, well, formative discipline, that would be like, that would be like eating right and exercising. That's what you do to, to build health and to maintain health. And that's what we see. We see a snapshot of this as we come to chapter two. We see in verse one that Paul instructs Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So, so teach the lifestyle that, that flows out of, that goes along with right believing. You know, don't just teach the gospel, but teach the implications of the gospel, right? People need clear instruction and clear modeling. And so what this looks like is 
the older Christian men in, in verse two, being sober-minded. In other words, being, being free from intoxication, able to, to see and discern clearly what's most important and, and to align their priorities accordingly. As, as maturity and wisdom would demand, it means, it means the older Christian men being dignified or worthy of respect. I don't think that means that they're to be haughty and, and stuck up, but it does convey a proper sense of, for example, like knowing when to laugh and when not to laugh. It, 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 would, it would mean, you know, not, not just constantly cracking jokes and constantly being frivolous or shallow, but, but someone who reminds the, the younger generation of what truly matters, what is important in life. Further, they're to be uh, self-controlled. Now, this trait is repeated over and over again, and it's actually a fruit of the Spirit. This is, so as, as you're reading through Titus 2, and it says the older men are to be self-controlled, that obviously doesn't mean that the rest of us get a pass. But self-controlled is, is something that we're all called to. And this was especially, I think Paul even emphasizes this more in this letter of Titus, because in Crete, it was an especially... Um, a society of indulgence, just whatever people felt like doing, that's what they pursued. There was, there was little uh, like sense of honor, so to speak. Whatever you felt like doing, you just did it. Um, you can see that in uh, verse 12 of chapter one, how one of the Cretan poets, you know, one of the, the pagan philosophers kind of has some things to say about his own people that aren't too flattering, Right. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, don't get thrown off like this. Paul is not, you know, throwing some ethnic slur at the Cretans. If you read the Bible, all of us as human beings, regardless of our ethnicity, uh, it doesn't paint a, a pleasant picture of us. We're all sinners who, who go astray from the, from the womb. We are all in desperate need of God's forgiveness. But, but on Crete, in this culture, there were certain sins that were more respectable than others, so to speak, more, more accepted in the society. And so there was an especially a, a lack of self-control, just indulgence left and right. Whatever passions ruled you in the moment, that's what you did. No, no, not really a, a sense of honor as much in this place. And so... And so over and over again, we, in this letter, we see self-control is emphasized. And this is a good lesson for us because, honestly, in, in many ways, uh, I think 21st century America is a lot like the island of Crete. We need to be reminded to be self-controlled. But furthermore, the older men are to be sound or healthy in, their, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness or in endurance. They're to, they're to set a good example in the church, even as their bodies may grow weak with age and they, they have to struggle to pull themselves out of bed in the morning. As they endure, um, you know, whether it be poor health or mysterious aches and pains or the loss of, of loved ones, to endure that with steadfastness and to remind others to, to continue to trust in the Lord, that the Lord is good and worthy of trust. What about the older women? The older women were, 
were to be teachers of what was good. They were not to be marked by, you know, um, alcohol abuse or, or slanderous speech, you know, tearing down the reputations of others, speaking evil of others behind their backs. Instead, they were to, they were to have a special calling in the Christian community to mentor the younger women. And uh, I'm so thankful that here at Emmanuel, um, we're seeing some of that taking place. Even as the ladies got together uh, yesterday morning for the, the monthly ladies brunch. And really, that's just a, that's just a starting point. That's just a, a launching pad where we hope that relationships can be formed and we can see um, women in each other's lives training each other for what is good. Now, you know, the, we see in the, the book of 1 Timothy that the office of pastor and the, the public teaching ministry of the church, like it's what I'm doing right now, um, is reserved to biblically qualified men. There are some things within the life of the church that God specifically calls certain men to do. But there are also other things in the church that God, that God calls qualified women to do. That are, that are their specific areas of ministry that, that really they're better fitted for. Notice that Paul doesn't tell Titus to spend time with the young wives and mothers in their homes, instructing them on how to love their husbands and children. He, he recognizes that for many reasons, it's better to have other women instructing them in the day-to-day practical nature of living out their faith in their homes, in their families. And so just practically here at Emmanuel, uh, I as a pastor need the help of the ladies of this church. If, if the women of this church, if there's to be a vibrant women's ministry, that's a lot of that it falls on the shoulders of the older women of this church, the, those that have um, a deep love for God and his word. And listen, you may not feel like you have a whole lot to offer, But if you love Jesus, if you've lived a few years and seen a few things, the least you can do is encourage a younger mom, a younger wife, younger woman. Now, as as I mentioned this, notice um, what Paul is giving us here is not an exhaustive list of everything that is to mark the life of every class of Christians. He's painting a rough sketch here. So notice that he doesn't really mention like young singles. And so don't get thrown off by that. What what Paul's main point here is to communicate is that church members are to be involved in each other's lives, not just through correction, not just pointing out what is wrong, what needs to be fixed, but modeling, exemplifying, teaching what is good. Think about a, a coach, you know, training an athlete. Maybe it's a you know, somebody that's helping somebody improve their baseball swing. And and the coach needs to not only point out if the players, you know, got some bad technique, but they also should model how the correct way to swing the bat. Corrective and informative discipline. Now notice in in verse five, the the young wives and mothers, they're to love their husbands and children. Uh, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And this, this isn't to say, I don't think that a wife 
a Christian wife or mother, you know, is, is bound to the house. They can't set foot outside of the house. They can never work in any way outside of the home. Anything that takes you outside of the homestead. You know, the Proverbs 31 woman certainly did many things that were outside of the, the walls of the house. But I do think that it, it reinforces a, a biblical teaching that would, that would call Christian wives and mothers to focus on supporting their husbands and building homes, building families. And, and so focusing their, their energies, not first and foremost on, you know, their personal career, but on their God-given career, their calling to, to nurture and build up and play a central role alongside of their husbands in raising up the next generation, and especially in those, those younger years. Local churches, they change the culture. They change the culture partly by encouraging the building up of strong families. Building up strong families. You know, this would especially, um, you know, I think a lot of people forgot Titus 2, especially during the Middle Ages, when there's a lot of uh, kind of mysticism and, and monasticism. When people thought that the way to be close to God was to separate yourself from society and go hide out in a cave like a hermit. There was, there was one lady, I, I remember this story, and she actually had a special room for herself built within the wall of the church so that she would always be in the house of God. And she had herself bricked into the wall of the church with no door. There was, there was no way for her to get out. There was just this window where she would, she would have food passed in. This, in her mind, perhaps, this was a way to get close to God. This was a way to be pure and holy. But that's not what the Bible would teach. The Bible would teach that the life that honors God is the life that is lived out in service to your family, to your loved ones, to your church, to your community. It's where you're involved in the lives of other people, loving them with the love of Christ. We're to be exemplary in our work. Notice the instructions to the, the bond servants or the slaves in verses 9 and 10. Now, let me point out in passing that, um, you know, at first glance, this can seem a little um, odd to us. Like, okay, these slaves are being called to submit to their masters, but what about the masters? What about the, you know, shouldn't they be called to set their slaves free? I mean, where, where's the instructions to them? But again, we need to remember that this is just a rough sketch. This is not a, a detailed list of every class of, of Christian. Most Christians in the early church were actually from the slave class. There were a lot of slaves in the ancient Roman Empire. Most of the early Christians were not wealthy landowners, but rather those from the, the working class. And Paul is no revolutionary. The gospel changes society not by, not by coming in with violence and force and coercion, not by focusing on the structures of society first, but by focusing on the people within society, on the hearts and minds of people first. It changes people from within, and then they change the world. 
listen, you can, you can have a perfect system, but as long as there are wicked people in that system operating it, people will still be hurt and taken advantage of. On the other hand, you can have a, a less than ideal system, such as they had in ancient Rome, where, you know, the, the slaves didn't really have any rights. You can have a, a less than ideal system, but if, there are, but if there are people within that system who are being taught to look out for the interests of others above their own, to treat one another as, as equals, as, as fellow human beings with dignity, loving them even more than they love themselves, well, that, that turns society on its head. Then you can have true peace and harmony. Then the culture is changed. And so the gospel came into the, the slave master setup in, ancient, in the ancient Roman Empire. And, it, and, and because of the effect of the gospel, it basically would have turned it into the, the best employer-employee situation that you'd have here in the West. Because the masters would no longer be cruel overlords who viewed their slaves as property to be abused and taken advantage of until they died. And instead, check the book of Philemon, the grace of God would have trained and motivated them to treat those who worked under them with respect, to love them, to think about their needs and not just their own, to treat them even as brothers and sisters in the faith. So Paul was not encouraging the those that found themselves, though, as slaves, he wasn't encouraging them to rebel or to start a riot or to demand their rights, but to be the best and most diligent and respectful workers they could be in their less than ideal situation. And saying that even in such a situation, they could bring honor to Christ. They could even, they could even it'd be, it'd be said, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior as it says at the end of verse 10. Think about that word adorn. You know, we, we might use that as like, you know, hey, we've adorned this room with, with garlands and, and the red flowers. What are these called again? Poinsettias. We've, we've adorned the stage with poinsettias. You know, it's, it's bringing out the beauty of, of the room. And as Christians, have you thought about your life is meant to adorn the truth of God. So when people, you know, they don't have Jesus walking around in Springdale to just go to and say, well, you know, what do I think of Jesus? What they think of Jesus is going to be shaped by those who name the name of Jesus, those who represent Jesus, which may be you, you know, in your workplace, what your coworkers are going to think of Jesus. You have a great effect on that. Our lives are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, to commend his gospel. So when people see us, they're not turned away from Christianity. Instead, they, they say, you know, whatever that person has, I want that. I don't know much about this Jesus, but if, if, if this is the kind of life he produces, this kind of self-control and patience and, and joy, I want that. It's funny how this list we have in Titus 2 is so ordinary. Notice that. It's so ordinary. It's, you know, we think of like, okay, how can we 
What great evangelistic programs can we invent? What master strategies can we put on, you know, social media campaigns to reach the world? God, what's the plan? You know, we're ready to evangelize the lost. What exciting program do you have for us? He says, well, don't be late for work. You know, love your family. Love your husband. Treat your boss with respect. Be diligent. Don't don't waste your boss's money. Work hard and, and seek to bless your company and your employer until you clock out. Don't be going to the the break room early just to just to chill. And what is the result of such extraordinary living in the ordinariness of our everyday lives? Well, it adorns the gospel. It commends the good news. This brings us to our last point in closing. Through corrective and formative discipline, we honor God and commend his gospel to others. That's the result of such training. We say, whenever we see hypocrisy, we say, no, that is wrong. Whenever we see sin in our midst, we say that is not okay. We don't endorse that. And we train one another through formative discipline in in the life that honors God and is useful to society. But what if, you're, what if you're not a Christian here this morning? The first thing that, that I would call you to think about is what gospel are we talking about here? What truth are we talking about adorning? You know, as, as Christians, I want people to love Jesus. I, I want them when they see my life to say, Man, I want Jesus. If Ben loves Jesus that much, maybe I should get to know Jesus. But if I just had a few moments to to share with you why you should love Jesus. Listen, it's, it's because he first loved us. It's because though we in our sin have rebelled against God, though we have all like sheep gone astray from him, rebelled against our rightful king, Though we deserve only his punishment and anger and displeasure for all of eternity, though all of that is true, he sent his only begotten son. And God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, God became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He came to live the life that we have failed to live. And and truthfully, Truth be told, the life that we will never fully live, even after walking with Christ for decades, we'll still have things we should should work on. But Jesus obeyed the law perfectly for us. And then he went to the cross and got what we deserved if we were to have justice. He died suffering the curse that was due to us for our sin. So So that all who repent and believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So the question for you this morning is, have you repented? Have you believed on him? I'm not, I'm not asking if you're a member of a church somewhere. I'm not asking if you tithe. 
I'm not asking if you've walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. I'm asking, have you repented of your sin? Is, have you submitted your life, turning it over, surrendering it completely to God as your king so that now you take orders from him no matter what the results are? And have you believed upon him? Do you believe, do you trust that what Jesus did and that alone is good enough to get you into heaven? One day, this Jesus will return. He will judge the world. All who have believed upon him will be saved. But Jesus also warns us that those who do not believe, they're condemned already because they have not believed on the name of the only son of God. So if you have any questions about that, I'd, urge you, please come talk with me after the service. Or grab one of those books on your way out. What is the gospel? Or who is Jesus? And read it. And, and think about what it, what it would call you to do. What it means to repent and believe. But once you do, the life that God calls you to, as he's loved you, he simply calls you to love him back. He, he knows you're not going to do it perfectly. But he wants you to love him and he wants you to live a life that will make others want to love him and follow him. And again, the way we do that is through corrective and formative discipline as we do life together in the local church. Let's pray. Lord God, help what we've thought about this morning to sing into our hearts. Help it to transform our lives. I pray that uh, those that are kind of disconnected from uh, a, a community of Christians would, would seek to become more connected to one this morning. I pray that those who do not know Christ this morning would, would know that they need Christ, that they need his salvation. I pray that those of us who do know Christ, you know, the, the members here of, of Emmanuel, that we would be thinking about what you would have us to do how we can be involved in being mentored and mentoring others in, in training one another in the lives that honor Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.